Good morning. We're so glad you're here to worship with us. We want to say welcome to Broadway 1109. We are so thankful that you're here. And man, this is a lot of red up front. We are so glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. We're excited about all that's gone on this weekend and the things that are going to continue to happen over the coming days. As we begin our time together, we're reminded that our worship is a response to God revealing himself to us. And part of the way that he does that is through his word. So we're going to read together from Psalm chapter 103. If you want to follow along with me, you're welcome to. Listen to these words of the psalmist David. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. And then he names a list of reasons why he's worshiping God. He says, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. To echo that this morning, we're going to stand as we sing together this morning and bless the Lord as we worship him together. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I worship your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass, Whatever lies before me Let me be singing when the evening comes Let's sing together this morning Bless the Lord, oh my soul Oh my soul Worship His holy name Oh 
Ten thousand reasons for my heart to find. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before. sing together and on that day when my strength is failing the end draws near and my time has come still my soul will sing your praise unending ten thousand years and then forever for just a moment. Stuff out all over the place, so uh, I'm just going to go down the 
Douglas, don't they? Kelly Sword, uh, Minnie and Rex Sinem, uh, John and Kelly King, uh, Michael Madonna Davis, Dan and Sherry Austin, and uh, Jeff Lamb, uh, Rob Highgrave, Chris Wright, uh, Richard Carroll. So thank you to all of you in the NFI. I hope it for you and you help. Thank you so much. You're not, it seems like you're proud of you now. I thank you all so much. We had a tremendous band this weekend. They're from Frankfurt. We hope you came in. I want to thank them for coming here. They did a great job leading our students in worship and really served us well. And of course, I want to say thank you. And this will segue to the introduction. Thank you to Josh McClellan, who's here for the third consecutive year to serve our students and give so much of his time. I gave him a break from Sunday school this morning. The last couple of years, he did Sunday school for us too, but this year he's preaching two Sunday morning services. So I said, you know, you, you earned a little break. So uh, uh, we are very grateful for him to join us this morning. And, and if, if you aren't familiar with Josh, uh, Josh and I go way back. He was my uh, college minister at the University of Science Arts in Oklahoma, and we stayed close throughout the year. He, he officiated my wedding, and uh, I'm grateful for him to be able to be here. He is a tremendous Bible teacher, and so I think you will all be blessed by hearing the word from him this morning. So um, let us pray, go to the Lord, as we continue to worship. Lord, we give thanks to you for your mighty work in our lives. We give thanks to you for your kindness and goodness. How you allow us to come to you, even when we're broken, even when we're hurting. How you love us uh, as a kind and generous Father. Uh, so, Lord, uh, may we be ready to worship you. May we be ready to hear from your word so that uh, we may be built up as a church to live faithfully for you. And we pray that as we're fed this morning, uh, we will go out and be ready to feed others the word as well. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we move on, I think there's one more person that we need to thank. Zach Bauer is our youth pastor here at Broadway Baptist. And Zach has done a fantastic job. Yeah, give it up for Zach. So we want to say thank you to Zach for all of his hard work for this weekend and through the rest of the year. Uh, Zach does a fantastic job with our students and really has a passion for seeing lives changed for Christ in middle and high schoolers. So we want to say thank you to all of our volunteers as well as to, to Zach and, and those who have made this weekend possible. We want to invite you as we continue to worship. Let's stand together and we're going to sing some more. But he brought me in, know his love for me, oh, his love for me. Let's sing together. Through the sun sets free, oh, it's free indeed. I'm a child of God, yes, I Yeah. 
the world you created training your crown for a cross you willingly died your innocent life paid the cost counting your status as nothing the king of all kings came to serve Washing my feet, covering me with your love. Let's sing this out. If for you means less of me, take everything. Yes, all of you is all I need. Take everything. you stand and sing with us this morning. You are my life and my treasure, the one that I can live without. Here at your feet my desires and dreams I lay.
you would remove anything from us that's not of you. Lord, we pray for more of you in our lives, more of your presence, more of your, more of your authority. Lord, we pray that you would come and fill us. God, we love you. We praise you for who you are and for all that you have done for us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Northern Michigan, uh, the spiritual surveys showed about, in 2000, about 50% had no religious affiliation whatsoever. And then 2010, it was something like 75%. The trend lines are not going in the right direction. So what we, what we recognized is that we, there were a lot of people that were going to a Christless eternity. And it's great to be able to, as a church plant, look at some programs that are successful elsewhere and say, hey, you know what? As God's moving you guys this way, look what they're doing and let us help Help us, you know, help us dream. Now, what could we do? She said, hey, you know what? We're doing this Children's Missions Day. Uh, and what we're going to do is we want to do baskets for veterans. And you're a veteran. Would you be willing to come over and talk to us about veterans? And then, you know, maybe would you be able to find some place for the vet veterans things? And I was like, fantastic. Everybody that came in, we said, hey, there's, there's a local church that's thinking about you guys. If you'd like to take a fruit basket, take a fruit basket. So then I came back to our church. I said, hey, listen, church. Uh, this is something we did from the orchard. We used the, the WMU there. They had a children's mission day and they did this thing and then I was able to give the baskets out. I think we could do it here. And I think it's something we could do fairly, fairly often. I want to try it once a week. Can we make seven baskets a week? 
Is that something that we can do? And uh, and they said, yeah, let's let's go ahead and do that. So we that's what we did. So we started out with the VA uh, going there, recognizing the the sacrifice of the former military uh, members there, and then we've broadened it since then. Serving others, it's not only helping the, the person you're serving, but it really is fulfilling your, your love um, that God instills in you. We'll have all the kids sit down and we have kind of a stock card and then the kids will draw a picture and they'll scrawl out a little message. It's by making a, a really stock card that around the framework says Jesus loves you. I know that the message is going to go out there. I do include on the back of it, I include a little information that it's come, come from True North Community Church. And I do put a little blurb there. I say, hey, listen, if you don't have a church a family to be part of, you're welcome to stop by. We have services at, at 9 and, and 11 on Sunday, and here's our address. And I do give a link to our website and say, hey, you know what, we want to drop off some fruit baskets to show that we really respect and, and we, we're, we're thinking about you, we're praying for you, and just want you to know, you know, we love you and so does Jesus. testing. Anyways, it was in an effort to save my voice. It, it also helps your voice when the mic's on. Um, and uh, so Zach, uh, Zach's, he's worn me down. And so last night was a little rough, but we'll, uh, we'll try to get through it. Bear with me if I have to clear my throat um, or cough or something like that. We'll pray that um, God helps uh, sort of minimize that this morning so it won't be too much of a distraction. Um, man, I'm grateful to be with you guys today. I've, I've been grateful to be here this weekend. Um, Zach is like a son in the faith to me. And um, I'm just, I'm proud of who he is. I'm proud of his, his, uh, his life. I'm proud of his calling to ministry um, and his faithfulness and fulfilling that calling. Um, and, uh, and quite frankly, uh, in, a, in, a, in a church culture where Lots of student ministers really don't run ministries in a way that really seeks to draw students to Christ, disciple them and grow them. Um, I know that Zach's a guy that's committed to that and uh, not just running around, playing games, having fun. Not that we all don't want to have some fun in the church, and we should. We should have fun in the church. Um, Jesus came to give us life. Um, that being said, we're also here for some really serious reasons uh, about things that are super important. Um, and, uh, and I know that Zach's commitment. And so uh, thank you for being a, a church that's uh, provided him a, a forum for, and the chance to do that and for, for loving him and his family. <clears throat> it means a lot to me personally as well. So we, we've looked this week 
uh, or really this weekend with the students at um, really the idea of relationships. Zach brought it up just a moment ago uh, when he kind of introduced things. And we've used the word fused to sort of describe um, or sort of theme the weekend. And the idea is that we are fused in these fundamental relationships. Reality is relationships is quite possibly the most important part of our human experience. And uh, God is a relational being. God has existed as a relational being from eternity past uh, into eternity future perfectly. He has never been alone in the sense that he is Trinity. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. God didn't make you because he needed someone to fulfill him. He needed fellowship in the sense of he needed someone to talk to and not be alone uh, anymore. God had perfect union, perfect fellowship, perfect relationship within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he makes us relational beings in that same way, in his image. Relationships are fundamental to our lives. And maybe more than anything else, they make all the difference in whether the quality of our life is one that's really high or whether the quality of our life is really low. How relationships go makes a massive difference in the trajectory and the fulfillment of our lives. We looked at really probably the three most fundamental relationships that are at work in uh, students' lives today. And that's really just pretty much as true for you as adults as it is for them. We looked at relationships with boyfriends or girlfriends or the opposite sex, relationships that ultimately will culminate in marriage, fused in marriage. <clears throat> we also, <clears throat> there it was, that's number one. Um, then we also looked at relationships with parents, fused in family. That was their favorite one. I mean, they loved that one. They loved hearing about, uh, about parents and, and the relationship of parents to children. Uh, but listen, that's a fundamental relationship that's important. And as much as, as we in those years of adolescence and teenage years are pushing against uh, some of the authority that our parents have in our lives, we're seeking sort of freedom and independence and autonomy in our lives. Listen, uh, we long for proper connection with mom and dad. And when it's not there, it has a detrimental effect on our lives. It's an important relationship. And then we looked at friends, friendship. Uh, fused in friendship. So fused in marriage, fused in family, fused in friendship. And how God lays out boundaries for how we are to live in those relationships. This morning is a little bit different than those three. Um, but, uh, but it kind of carries some of the same idea in terms of this idea of being fused. The, the sermon title this morning is this, if you're taking notes, it's fused colon body and soul, body and soul. And if that sounds a little bit confusing or cryptic, hopefully by the end of the sermon, it will make a bit more sense. Fused body and soul. Unless you've just been hiding under a rock or <clears throat> completely disconnected from the world around you over, the, over recent years, you know that there is massive cultural shift going on in our country, particularly, particularly in the area of morality and sexual ethics. 
things are changing radically in our culture. And they're moving away, really, from the way that God has designed us to live and to function. I want to read you a quote from a pretty well-known Christian author um, and sort of prophetic voice in the church today. This is a quote from him in the year 2012. His name is Carl Truman. <clears throat> and he says this, he says, the beautiful young things of the reformed Renaissance have a hard choice to make in the next decade. You really do kid only yourselves if you think you can be an orthodox Christian and be at the same time cool enough and hip enough to cut it in the wider world. Frankly, in a couple of years, it will not matter how much you, urban ink you sport, how much fair trade coffee you drink, how many craft brews you can name, how much urban gibberish you spout, how many art house movies you can find that redeemer figure in, and how much money you divert from gospel preaching to social justice. Maintaining biblical sexual ethics will be the equivalent in our culture of being a white supremacist. That's what Carl Truman says. I would add to that on top of just those things that are pretty superficial. <laughs> um, hanging out in coffee shops, drinking coffee, things like that, that it doesn't matter how many foster children we take care of, how many orphans we adopt, how many homeless people we feed, how many people in the community we care for. It doesn't matter how we do or how much we do of any of those things. If we don't succumb and align to their moral agenda on these issues, then we will be seen the way Carl Truman says we will be seen. I have a seventh grade son this year who is dealing with these things at school. And there is immense social pressure on a kid his age to align with the majority and the opinions of the people around him. And relationships are at stake in whether or not he is public or private about his views on these kinds of things. There's much at stake in this. There's been massive cultural shift on these issues. And we're coming to a time where, quite frankly, there is a price to be paid for the church in America to remain faithful to what God teaches in these areas. What I'd like to do in our time this morning is I would like for us to explore sort of a foundational principle or idea that undergirds the way that the world, the way that the culture in our country looks at these issues and then evaluate that based on the biblical standard so that hopefully we can be equipped to respond to it um, in the coming days of our lives. And really the, the issue here revolves, this topic revolves around this thing, this theme, um, and it's the issue of personhood, the issue of personhood. Let me, let me read a quote from a passage in a book real quick to hopefully kind of lay, like hopefully help kind of introduce, I think, um, what we're talking about here. This is, a, this is a passage written about a British broadcaster and journalist, a woman named Miranda Sawyer, um, who her whole life, she's been a secularist, a pro-abortion, a pro-choice advocate. Let me read what this passage says about something she experienced in her own personal journey. It says, 
It says, <clears throat> a few years ago, an article appeared by a British broadcaster named Miranda Sawyer, who described herself as a liberal feminist. In the article, she said she had always been firmly pro-choice until she became pregnant with her own baby. Then she began to struggle. I was calling the life inside me a baby because I wanted it. Yet if I hadn't, I would think of it just as a group of cells that it was okay to kill. That seemed irrational to me, maybe even immoral. It looks like a light is turning on, doesn't it? Babies in the womb don't qualify as human only if someone wants them. Sawyer had run up against the wall of reality, and reality did not fit her ideology. So she began researching the subject and even produced a documentary. Finally, she reached her conclusion, listened to her conclusion. In the end, I have to agree that life begins at conception. So yes, abortion is ending that life. But perhaps the fact of life isn't what's important. It's whether that life has grown enough to start becoming a person. So here's what she's done. She's acknowledged that there's life in the womb of a mother. Can't argue against that. Even acknowledges that that life begins at conception, but says, <clears throat> despite the fact that there's biological life, there's physical life, it's not a person yet. What happened here to the concept of the human being? It has been torn in two. If a baby is human life from conception, but not a person until some later time, then clearly these are two different things. Thus, we have a new category of individual, the human non-person. Arguments for abortion have shifted. The weight of what we can see now when it comes to life, technology has given us, has helped us see and understand that life in such beautiful precision exists from that moment of conception in the womb of a mother. And so she can't argue against that anymore. But the argument is, it's not a person yet. Here's what she's done. She separated what's physical, biological life, our body, from personhood. Here's why that's important. It undergirds the way that we look at everything when it comes to morality and sexual ethics. It undergirds euthanasia that there's a point at which personhood is diminished, so the body doesn't matter, we can get rid of it. It undergirds homosexuality. It doesn't matter what my body is, my person inside of me inwardly feels like I'm this, so that's what I am. The same for transgenderism. My body is one thing, but my, what my body is doesn't matter. My personhood, what, what I am as a person, is not connected to my body, so I can be this. We've detached personhood and identity from the physical body. What that is, is a cheapening of the physical body. We've said the body doesn't matter. We've said it's cheap. It doesn't tell us anything about who we really are. And that undergirds everything that sort of the sexual agenda at work in our culture is based on. So what does the Bible have to say about this? Well, I think the Bible has to say something pretty radically different. And so I want us to look and I want to give you three points about what the Bible has to say about 
the physical body and the physical world. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start at the beginning. By the way, as we begin to get into this this morning, you know, the author of Ecclesiastes is right. There's really nothing new under the sun. What's fascinating to me is how where we are culturally today in the 21st century looks so much like the same things that we see at work in the first century when the New Testament authors were writing. What we're going to see is there was a lot of thought that in that day that really relates back to the exact things that we're talking about today um, in our own culture. And so hopefully we'll be able to, uh, hopefully that will come across um, as we work through these things this morning and we'll be able to see that. So here's point number one. Culture around us says the physical body is pretty worthless. It doesn't really tell us anything. It doesn't matter. Personhood is detached from that. Who I am and what I am is something that I experienced and know based upon who I am inwardly, my soul, so to speak. That's what I am. But here's point number one. The physical body or material word, word, world, is inherently good is inherently good. Look what Genesis 1, 26 says. This relates back to human beings. Mind you, this is before sin has come into the equation. This is the world that God has created. It hasn't been tainted and tarnished by the influence of sin. He says, then let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And then if you turn over to verse 31, what does he say? And God saw everything that he had made. So not just human beings, not just these physical human beings, but everything in the material, physical world. When he's done with this creation, look what he says. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold... It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So God declares that the world around us, the physical world and our physical bodies are good. They're not bad. You know, it's interesting. In the, at the time of the writing of the New Testament, in the culture at large of that day, in the Greco-Roman world, there was a philosopher named Plato that was heavily influential. And Plato taught a way of viewing the world that said that what's spiritual, what's immaterial, what's not physical is sort of the realm of what's ultimate. And this is what's good, and this is what we seek, and this is what we want in life. But the physical world is, is, is corrupt and wicked and bad inherently. That's what, that's what Plato taught has major ramifications for what we're going to see here in a few minutes about the way people even perceived of and thought about Jesus and what we believe as Christians about Jesus. And so Plato taught that the world around us is corrupt, that it's wicked, that it's messed up, that it's not ultimately what we should seek to value highest, that what's immaterial, that soul, is what's of highest value. God says here what? He says that the physical world is of value. He says it is to be held in high regard. And yes, we as Christians understand that it's been marred and tainted by sin, right? 
But that doesn't diminish the value of how God made it. Let me give you an example. If I were to take two $100 bills and sit them down right here, one of them would be pristine. It would be perfect. It would be, it would be crisp. I mean, old Ben practically would wink at you on that thing. I mean, it is perfect. Not a scratch on it, not a stain on it, nothing. Perfect $100 bill. Let's say right next to it, we put one that was all crumpled up. It had been dragged through the mud. It had been scuffed up and kicked around. It had probably even been torn. Let me ask you a question. Which one's worth more? They're worth the same, aren't they? Yeah. Just because that one had gotten dirty and been crumpled up and crunched up and marred and tarnished, it didn't diminish the value of it, did it? It was still worth $100, just like the perfect one. It just needed to be cleaned up. That's the case with us. God created it good. God created it with value. God created it in his own image. And he declared it good. And yes, sin has sort of affected it, but it hasn't diminished the value of it. It's still worth just as much as it was before. And it's worth so much that God's going to spend his time redeeming it and restoring it and transforming it and bringing it back to be what it should be in the end. So scripture teaches that the physical body and the material world are good. God designs them to be good. Think of this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. You are not ready for heaven for eternity until you have a physical body. You're not going to exist in eternity as a spirit out there in an immaterial world. You're going to exist as a physical being on a renewed and transformed heaven and earth with God. We will exist for eternity as physical beings. This is the ultimate of what God is bringing us to. It's not something bad. I want to bring up a topic real quick that's a little bit sensitive. And I want you to hear me that, that what I'm about to say is certainly not anything that should be like a test of faith or divisive in the church at all. I, please, I, I don't want to offend anyone as I, as I bring this topic up. But, um, but it, there's been very few funerals that I've done, I would say, in the last five to ten years where, uh, in the church where it hasn't been one where they have had someone's body cremated, the person that had died. Um, and listen, we, people are making a lot of money off of funerals, aren't they? They're expensive. And a lot of it, I think, is just practical because of the money that goes into it oftentimes. But a lot of people are siding on the side of cremation. Um, listen, if you look back in the ancient world, in the early church, what you see is it's the pagans who were burning bodies. But it was the Christians from the very beginning who had such a high view of the body that they wouldn't do that. They would bury those bodies in waiting for eternity. The catacombs in Rome were bodies were buried by the Christians to wait until Jesus would come back and restore. Again, hear me clearly. God's bigger than all of that. <laughs> it's not like, uh, like this is a test of faith or it's not like God's big enough to take care of those things in the end. But I say all that to say the historic position of the church has been that we affirm a high view of the physical world and the physical body. And we keep that body intact even in death and we bury it. Um, 
The Bible teaches a high view of the physical body, and it is connected to, deeply connected to human personhood and who we are. This idea of being fused body and soul. Here's point number two. Point number one, the physical world, the physical body is inherently good. Point number two, what we do with our bodies matters. What we do with our bodies matters. Paul and the early church had to deal with the fact that what happened was, as people were becoming Christians, they were bringing a lot of their cultural ideas to the forefront, and they were sort of syncretizing and mixing it with their faith. And you had all these sort of mi mixed up and messed up ideas, really, about Christianity. And, and, uh, and so the early church uh, leaders and the New Testament authors had to deal with some of those things. One of the things that some of those authors had to deal with was the fact that, again, this idea that Jesus, he saves our soul, but once that's done, my body is pretty irrelevant. I can do whatever I want physically with my body out in the world because I'm saved and my soul or my spirit can't be tarnished. So how I live my life really doesn't matter. It wasn't all that uncommon. And that's why Paul in the book of Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, well, just turn there. I want you to see what it says. Romans 6 verse 23. Excuse me, verses, starting in verse 20. Um, no, not 23. My bad. Verse 13. Romans 6, 13. Do not present the members of your body, your, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So Paul says, listen, present the instruments of your body, the members of your body to God. For righteousness. What you do with your body matters. What does he say in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2? He says that your spiritual act of worship is what? To present your bodies as living sacrifices unto God. That God expects the functioning of your life and your body and the, and the practice of life with your body. What you do to be dedicated to God as worship to him. So what we do with our bodies matters. Here's point number three. It's my favorite point. It's the best one because we get to talk about Jesus. Here's point number three. Point number one, the physical body is inherently good. Point number two, what we do with our physical bodies matters. Point number three, the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus demonstrate the goodness of the body. The incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus demonstrate the goodness of of the body. Think about it. Jesus came in the flesh. If you look in 1 John chapter 4, John says there that basically unless you acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh and was human and had a physical body, then you aren't a Christian. John says in chapter 1 of his first epistle, this Jesus whom we have what? Whom we have touched 
Why was he saying this? Why was this such a big deal? Because, again, this idea of the physical world being corrupt and the physical world being bad and the immaterial spiritual world being the good one by itself had caused people in that day to say there's no way that if God would come to earth, he would ever take on physical form. He couldn't do that. God, who is perfect, could never have a physical body. He could never touch the corruption and wickedness of the physical world. And so ideas came up that had to be combated by the early church. Ideas like the fact that Jesus was here, and he was the Messiah, and he looked like a physical being. But guess what? He wasn't. He was just a spirit. He was just a ghost. Or ideas like the one that, yeah, he was physical for a little bit, but then he got out of that body <clears throat> because he couldn't stay in it any longer. And particularly when he's taken to the cross, it's not really a physical Jesus that dies on the cross. See, these ideas, this foundation in their culture shaped and influenced the ways people were thinking about the very nature of Jesus. And that's why John and Paul and Peter and these guys came along and said, listen, unless you affirm that Jesus came in the flesh, that Jesus had a physical body, that he was real, then you're not a Christian. Then you're not a Christian. Reality is the physical world is good and God sent his son Jesus to be a God-man. And Jesus was every bit as human in a physical body and a physical form as anyone could be. The Romans had a really hard time with the idea that God would become flesh. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, listen, the gospel is foolishness to Gentiles. They hear some of these ideas and they're like, whatever, that's not going to work. There's no way that's true was foolishness to Gentiles, that God would take on human form, that God would, would put himself into the corruption of the physical world. But the Bible says that Jesus was God incarnate, God who was man, God who took on physical form and flesh. The other thing we see, not only in the incarnation, but also in the resurrection, when Jesus comes back from the dead, does he come back just as a spirit? He comes back as a man with a physical body. It's a better one. It's a better body. It's different than the one he had before, but it's a physical body. And the reason that's important is because Jesus in his resurrection is demonstrating that he is the one who will come and will lead a redeemed humanity, a new humanity to God's end which is to be refined and sanctified and glorified and to be perfected once again to restore everything that was lost in the fall. And so Jesus embodies what it is to be the first of this new humanity, this restored humanity. And so Jesus comes back from his resurrection as a physical being. Not only in his resurrection, but even in his ascension, I want to read you a, just a stunning quote from a Christian author named Nancy Piercy. She wrote a fantastic book. Listen, if this is a subject that interests you and you feel like you would like to do more reading or studying, and you should, quite frankly, in my opinion, um, she wrote a book called Love Thy Body that speaks to these issues 
better than any other book I've ever read. But listen to what she says. This is a beautiful, stunning quote. Not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he also ascended into heaven. We often think of the ascension as a kind of add-on with no important theological meaning. What it means, however, is that Christ's taking on of human nature was not a temporary expedient to be left behind when he finished the work of salvation. Because he was taken bodily into heaven, his human nature is permanently connected to his divine nature. Think about that. The second person of the Trinity will forever now be joined, <laughs> be fused with the physical Jesus. And how we see that even in the ascension. Stunning words. Listen, the physical world is not evil in and of itself. It's inherently good. It was created by God to be good. It's not cheap. It's of high value. And we see that in the life, in the incarnation, and the resurrection of Jesus. <coughs> we live in a challenging time. We live in a time where the church is under pretty fierce attack. And we, under, we, and we live in a time where it's going to take real courage to be uncompromising in regard to what we believe. What we see here, I hope, is that, that, the, that the view of the world is in contradiction to the view of God. That they are out of touch with reality. They are out of touch with how things really are. And listen, when you're out of touch with God's design, it doesn't lead to life, it leads to destruction. Make no mistake, this moral social experiment that we are in the middle of in our culture will fail miserably. It will fail miserably. And the carnage that will be left in its wake will be pervasive. Why? Because we have deviated from God's design. And in this case, we have bought into the lie that we can do whatever we want. And this idea of personhood disconnected from the body, that the soul and the body are not a coherent unit that go together. And the body defines who I am just as much as the soul does, that those things go together. And God makes us that way. And when we reject that and we live in accordance with a different way, it won't lead to our flourishing. It will lead to our destruction. And listen, we're coming upon days where the, just the massive confusion and chaos and destruction will be all around us. People's lives will be an absolute mess. Despite what the media will tell you, it will not work. They would love to shape the narrative. They do shape the narrative, but be not deceived. It will not work. And we will see that in the lives of the people around us. In the midst of that, we have a high calling. We have a high calling. And I finish with this. Our calling, I think, is really twofold. One, to be prophetic to the world. When I say that, to be people who know what is right, and who seek to warn people 
when they have strayed from it. Again, this doesn't come out of an attitude that just enjoys being right and telling people that they're wrong. But the church is called to have a prophetic voice to the world. I believe that's the message of the book of Revelation. Revelation is one of my favorite books in the Bible, but not for the reasons most people read it that way. Most people like Revelation just because it's kind of interesting and you kind of think that it's telling the future. My, my love for Revelation has nothing to do with that. I think Revelation is a beautiful missional book. It, sh- it shows a picture of the, 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 the scope of God's redemptive purpose in all the earth, unlike any other book in the Bible. And it calls the church to be prophetic witness to the world to accomplish what God's judgment can't accomplish, to see the redemption of people. And to be a prophetic voice is to warn people when they've gone astray. We have a responsibility before God to be that kind of voice, to help people understand where they've gone wrong. But we never do that again out of arrogance or just a desire to be right. We also have a pastoral calling, a a prophetic calling and a pastoral calling, a calling to love people and be concerned about people. And listen, people that we know, people that we love, family members, friends, co-workers, others, their lives are going to be left in shambles because they've bought into the lies of the world. And out of genuine love and concern, our desire should be to be there to show them a better way, God's way, and help them pick the pieces back up and put them together. Like, how much do you really have to hate someone? If, if they're standing on a road and there's a Mack truck barreling down on that road at 65 plus miles an hour, how much do we have to hate someone to look at that and just shrug our shoulders and walk away? Will we not say, get off the road? Will we not seek to plead and do whatever we could out of genuine concern for that person to get out of harm's way? This is our calling as the church. In the midst of all the lies and deception and error that permeates the world around us, in the midst of all of the devastation and confusion, in the midst of all the mess, The church is going to have to stand up and has a unique opportunity, I believe, in the coming years to say, this is God's design. This is a better way. Let me help you pick the pieces up and put it back together. People are going to need it. People are going to need it. Fused body and soul. God has designed us as people who are a coherent whole. Our body is a part of who we are. It defines personhood and identity as much as the soul. It does. We aren't what the world says we are. The body matters. The Bible has a high view of it. Hopefully we will have a high view of it. And hopefully the things that we've talked about this morning will help equip us to be able to engage those around us well in the coming days. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us for the great task at hand. God, I pray that our lives would be permeated with truth. God, I pray that we would not buy into the lies and the deceptions of the culture around us. (laughs) 
we need your guidance. We need your word. God, not only for our own sakes, but for the sakes of those around us. God, I pray that you would help us to be against the world for the world with our lives. God, thank you that you are gracious to us and forgiving to us, even in our failures. God, that there is hope in Christ. God, I pray that we would not only see and experience that in our own lives, but God, that we would extend that as your people to those around us, that people would know that there's hope in the midst of the hopelessness that they experience and find themselves in in their lives. So God, help us to be those kind of vessels for you and for your name in the coming days and weeks and months of our lives, God. Equip us, prepare us, use us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Hallelujah. Christ is risen from the grave. Hallelujah. Christ is risen from the grave. We stand and sing with us this morning. respond together this morning the prodigal is welcome home the sinner now is saints for the guy who died came back to life and everything has changed hallelujah Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, fear, where is your power? The mighty King of kings has disarmed you. Reliving and redeemed, eternal life is ours. Oh, praise His name forever. Call me in to heaven's sweet embrace. I'll see your skies, your open arms, the beauty of your face. Through tears of joy, I'll lift my voice in everlasting praise. Hallelujah. Christ is risen from the grave. Oh, 
death, where is your sting? Oh, fear, where is your power? The mighty King of kings has disarmed you. your open arms the beauty of your face through tears of joy I'll lift my voice in everlasting praise hallelujah Christ is risen from the grave amen we're thankful that you were with us this morning we hope you know that the response doesn't end here, but we always are open to helping you take your next step with Jesus as the Spirit calls you, whether that's in baptism or maybe joining our fellowship here at Broadway or, or trusting Christ for the first time. We want you to know that we are open and available to having that conversation with you. We, we uh, pray that you uh, know that and are welcome to call us anytime. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Ray Vasky. Ray is one of our deacons here at Broadway. Uh, and he's going to dismiss us as he's coming forward to pray for us. A couple of announcements that we want to remind you of. Uh, next Sunday, March the 8th, there's a spaghetti dinner fundraiser immediately following the 1109. Or if you want to eat during the 1109, that's okay too. There's an 1115 seating. Uh, that money is going to go to fund our college ministries mission trip to Whitley City, Kentucky. Uh, that's coming up in a couple of weeks. If you want more information on that trip, you can come see me after the service. But next week, Spaghetti Dinner Fundraiser, donations, whatever you want to pay. Downstairs in the Fellowship Hall, uh, you can take these back steps right behind the sanctuary here. That'll take you straight down to the Fellowship Hall. We would love to see you there. Uh, I think that's it, right?